The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. No, it's a side road because the the in my opinion the humanism is pagan. Protestantism is not pagan; it's a heresy. But it certainly uh, fanned the flames of Protestantism. The idea of uh, freeing man from the authority of the church it is principle in Protestantism, and that was certainly very strong in the humanists that the church had to be dumped. Uh, and that, that's a very uh, strong aspect of humanism. But to a great extent, Luther was reacting to humanism. Luther's uh, heresy is, uh, is a form of pietism. You see, it's a, an anti-dogmatic thing. Everything is your feelings about God and your relationship with God. It uh, crossed over or, or, or transcended, so to speak. It, 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 you and God uh, had the relationship. You didn't need the priests of the church in order to have a relationship with God. And so therefore it became a, a question of personal piety. It was a heresy of, of replacing the objective dogmas of Catholicism, the objective devotions and sacraments of Catholicism with personal interior piety. That, that's the, the real heart of that heresy. So in a, to a certain extent, he was... By opposing this piety to humanism, uh, he, he was opposing humanism. Uh, I, I don't think you could accuse uh, Luther of being a humanist in that sense. Uh, but he did, uh, the, the humanism wanted to dissolve uh, the ties that human beings had to the Catholic Church and the authority of the Catholic Church. And in that, to that extent, it, it paved the way. You know, you referred to St. Thomas. And when we, when we talked about him, St. Thomas Aquinas as this towering figure. Mm -hmm. And it, it's hard to ignore, especially post-Luther, that he's the sort of towering figure of heresy in this time period, something that the church had, and it's still with us to this day, uh, all the way up to, you could say, the joint declaration on justification, perhaps. Mm -hmm. It's difficult to, uh, and I don't want to make this, our conversation today about Luther himself. There's just so much we could talk about. Um, I suppose I want to start with talking about some of the more shocking things that Luther said, not just about our Lord. I mean, the church, we can say, well, you said before Alexander VI gave plenty of grist for the mill. So it can't really be that shocking that he would denounce the papacy as concomitant with Alexander VI. In some way, you can understand those denunciations. But I think what was most surprising to me as I learned about Luther and has been backed up in some of your writings is just how horrifying the man was. And you, you say it was a reaction to humanism. And in some ways, well, he either baptized humanism in his own new baptism or found a way to include many pagan practices because in some ways, Lutheranism is its own, its own paganism. It's worshiping yourself. It's mm -hmm. worshiping your own feelings yes. and your own desires. 
it's scandalous what he says. I almost, I almost don't want to repeat it, but it, it, it's helpful for viewers to know exactly what Luther, you know, was saying, what what he promotes, and if anyone's a follower of Luther today or calls themselves a Lutheran, what are they subscribing to? Can you speak about some of these more more scandalous, uh, unbelievable oh, sure. things? Well, uh, that Christ committed adultery three times: once with Saint Mary Magdalene, once with the woman uh, caught in adultery. And um, uh, someone else, I can't remember who it was, uh, but he said three times he committed adultery. He said, uh, sin bold, uh, boldly, but believe more boldly. Uh, that, or that he also said that you can uh, sin by impurity many times a day. I think he, he had some figure. He was always given to exaggeration. And, and you can still be right with the Lord. That, that the multiplication of sin does not uh, detach you from God, provided you believe. And belief for him was fiduciary. That means you trust in God. You throw yourself on God as the Savior. You believe that your sins are covered up by the blood of Christ. Uh, your sins are not forgiven. They are not, you are not released from your sins. But God forgets about your sin because he throws, in a sense, a blanket of the merits of Christ over you. Over you, the dung heap. Yes. And the uh, so, therefore, God sees only the merits of Christ when he looks at you because you believe. You have this trust in Christ as the Savior. And therefore, you remain a sinner. You're in, you are not in the state of grace. The whole idea of the state of grace was canceled out, eliminated completely. And uh, so you remain a sinner, and God knows that you're a sinner. He said it is impossible to... Uh, obey the commandments of God, and God does not expect us to obey them. It's just too much. It's not possible. Uh, he uh, did not believe in free will. He said, some days the, the devil is riding me, and sometime, some days God is riding me, and you know, when, when the devil's riding me, I sin, and when God is riding me, I don't. He compared himself to a donkey that, that is ridden by a, a rider. Or he would say some things weren't sins. He says, if in faith and adultery could be committed, it would be no sin. Yes, yes, that, uh, that it's not a sin if, if it's committed in faith. So he's taking the uh, Muslim way out, which is if Mohammed wanted something, he would have a revelation from God as to why it was permissible. And it seems Luther is following that act that uh, if he wants something, I'll just make something up. That yes, says that well, it's okay. Yeah, but it's very accommodating for somebody who wants to commit adultery to say that all you need is to throw yourself on Christ, the Savior, and everything's all right. And that God expects that you're going to commit adultery because he doesn't expect you to obey his laws. Well, if you tell that to some debauched noble who is running around after his mistresses and, and, and uh, concubines, that's good news. The other thing <laughs> is that he tells these nobles, you should be the head of the church in your little duchy. And forget about Rome, forget about the Pope. You should be the head of the church and you should own all of the church property. You'll get all that money. So, and in Germany, the church owned one third of German territory. So, and, you know, that was a very appealing thing. Uh, you know, in England, for example, that, that, <laughs> that famous, uh, a lot of those big country homes were once abbeys. Uh, and uh, they, they were confiscated by Henry VIII and given to his faithful friends, that is, those who went along with his ideas. And uh, so people were, enriched themselves a great deal by means of the Lutheran heresy, because 
all attachment to Rome was was cut, and the head of the church was the local monarch or or duke or other noble, uh, and everyone was expected to join his religion. So this was a very very appealing thing mm. that you could think of yourself as a holy man because you believed, uh, run around with your women, and 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 also confiscate all the money of the church. That that's quite a, a package. For a time when people are have no, and these are Catholics who have little or no sentiment uh, for obeying the Pope or for uh, for their faith at all. I mean, they're they're very close to heresy as it is. They're so humanized and so so secularized that their their faith is not very strong to begin with. Well, and as you say, the the weakness of the papacy at this time allows something to happen that hadn't happened before you. You talked about the heresies coming on right after you know you had the, the Arians and you know later on you'd have the and all the Nestorians, all the, and then later on you had the Albigensians. And well, this time the heresy finds friends in government, yes, that um, are not uh, immediately attacked either by Catholic monarchs or by the papacy, so it has time to grow, yes. flourish. And so it isn't simply a matter of some of what you talked about, which is the uh, the attractiveness of the doctrine, uh, an alternative, a, a plan B. I actually now have a choice. I, I don't just have to go with Catholicism. It isn't yes. the default religion of the world. Mm-hmm. I get to pick this other one. And as you say, it's very uh, attractive to the secular order. They can get some new houses without having to, to pay for them. Yes. Luther, in some ways... I, I wouldn't say he's the patron saint of the modern world, but you would call this period the beginning of the modern world. Absolutely. The Reformation is the beginning of everything. Uh, the 1300 to 1500 was preparation, but the Reformation is the source of all the bad thinking in everything. Philosophy, art, politics, everything of the modern world. He, he certainly is the father of the modern world, Martin Luther. He instituted not only this fiduciary faith that we talked about and the ability to sin and still consider yourself holy, but he also instituted the free examination of the scriptures, which is pivotal, especially for philosophy, because it it means that you can pick up the Bible and I can pick up the Bible, interpret it as each of us will, and that we're both right because we're both inspired by the Holy Ghost in our interpretation, and you come up with the idea that, well, the Holy Eucharist is merely a symbol. I come up with the idea that it's transubstantiated. Well, we're both right, because the Holy Ghost is inspiring us both. Well, I mean, but when you hear that, that that doesn't sound, that sounds very normal to modern ears. Your feelings are valid. You're okay. I'm okay. Uh, If it feels good, do it. This isn't new to us. No, but but what was it to the 16th century, 17th century man? How did the Catholic world react to it? And how did other people react to it? Because to us, it's no big deal. It's like, well, of course, yeah, well, we, we know all that. Obviously condemned it as a rejection of the teaching authority of the Catholic Church, which is intrinsic to the Catholic Church. It is its very nature. Uh, the Protestants were ready to accept it because of nominalism. The nominalism said, well, we don't really know anything objective. And that was a, a creeping problem, especially among intellectuals, that uh, we, we, uh, it fit perfectly into nominalism's model, that, that this is, uh, of 
course, uh, everything's subjective because we don't have objective knowledge. We don't have objective ideas. And this is the beginning of modern philosophy. Now, people are going to uh, still have the old sense of dogma, and that's why the Protestants are going to split up and fight. Because, well, we interpret it this way. Our group interprets it this way. Your group interprets it that way. So we have to split and fight. And so Protestantism splits up constantly uh, into all of these various things and these national identities because they are now very much aligned with and identified with the, the local king or the local duke or, or whoever it is. Uh, so there, there is a, a strong dose of nationalism in their religion. Uh, so this causes a tremendous confusion, a religious confusion among the Protestants. And this will give rise to the subjectivist philosophies of, of Immanuel Kant in the 18th century and also deism, which is a disgust with Christianity in general. And this is all rising up in Protestant countries. It is a product, a direct product of Protestantism, this subjectivism, that what is true for me is not true for you, but we're both true because we're both faithful each to our ideas and feelings, uh, which makes no sense at all. And again, but it's a very modern notion and it's something, <clears throat> again, when I say it's not shocking, it doesn't mean that I like the idea, but I'm an American and I live in the modern world. So hearing that idea, so that's it's not, did you come up with that today? It's, you know, it's a very, when you look at all of the things that, that Luther dealt with, I, I think of the, the phrase synthesis of all heresies, when we think about modernism and I think about, synthesis of all the problems of the modern world, or let's say the origin, where we have all of these different things that would flow from religious disagreements, which would then go down and eat into the order of the civil religious superstructure that had been built during the Middle Ages, which then when you create those holes and gaps in the superstructure, these other things can grow out and masquerade. Um, I think one of the interesting points you make is how uh, part of Lutheranism leads just to socialism. Yes, it, it, it leads to the deification of the state. The ruler becomes uh, very easily an absolute monarch, and that is with nothing between him and God. There is no pope, no church, nothing to moderate the ruler. Then the, the state becomes a type of super state, having all power and, and is invasive in all ways among the people. Uh, so the, the, uh, all of the principles of socialism are contained in, in the Lutheran heresy, the Protestant heresy, that the, the state is the highest aspect of human, uh, human endeavor, that the state becomes uh, identified with the church and is, is everything in, in the uh, human mind, you know, the state. Uh, and that's the, that was the progress of post-Renaissance uh, political systems if you look at Hobbes in England, uh, other uh, Louis XIV in France, I mean, even though he was Catholic, was following Protestant principles on that. I mean, he was not Catholic in his submission to the Pope. And I always remember that the Bourbons were originally Protestants. Mm -hmm. Henry IV was a Protestant who accepted. Well, you know, Paris is worth a mass. Yeah, you know, Paris is worth a mass. And uh, uh, so there was a spirit. I mean, he came from the leftist side. Very the, practical the side. Bourbons, yeah. Uh, but, you know, their, their roots are in defection from the faith, not the faith. Mm -hmm. And so Louis XIV, who, is, who embodies 
uh, absolutism was act actually acting on a, on a Protestant principle. But there are other monarchs at the time. The, the vogue was absolutism because precisely the king was responsible only to God. There was no church and there was no objective truth or anything between him and God. So And so he was the arbiter even of what you should believe. Well, and you, you, you say Louis XIV, but you would say even at least in, in some way he was Catholic. Once you inject Luther into Louis XIV, Louis XIV, then you, you would get, as you point out, totalitarianism. Yes. Which is there's no God. Yes. And it's just and, the and state. It's the state. I mean, it, it easily, I wouldn't say that, that Luther was denying God or denying religion in the state, but placing all uh, religion under the monarch, it, it leads directly to totalitarianism and, and an all-embracing state. When you add the Enlightenment, which is going to take religion out of that, it, it, it leaves you with a, an atheist, all-embracing state, which is precisely socialism. See, the, the, the 18th century is going to wreck religion and, and pull it out of the state altogether. So what you're left with is an all-embracing super state. And you saw the flourishing, if we can use that, the, the expansion of that idea in, uh, of course, the Communist Revolution in 1917, the French Revolution, which was in 1789, which was highly socialist, and uh, Nazi Nazism, uh, the superstate of the German superstate, uh, and the fascism in Italy, and uh, you know, that really ran its course, the idea of the super state, socialist state. You also make the point that, that Luther leads us to naturalism. Yes, the reason is that because man is always in the state of sin in the Lutheran system and never is freed from sin, it levels his vision. In the Catholic faith, you are, the idea of spiritual perfection is always open to you. So there is religious life and there are monasteries and there is a, a, an idea of the supernaturalization of society by, by the observance of supernatural laws. And so the supernatural was, was always prevalent in Catholic culture and is always prevalent in a truly Catholic culture. And the high Middle Ages is significant, it manifests that presence of the supernatural in all things. Whereas in the, in the Lutheran system, you remain a sinner. So, and you can never get out of that. You're always on an equal level with every, we're all sinners. And all we have to do is believe. And there's no way in which we can progress toward God or perfect ourselves spiritually. It's a leveling of society. And so you see that in, in European culture, in the Protestant countries, the turn toward mercantilism and commerce and empire building as the main uh, activity of human beings. Uh, inventions and technology uh, uh, as, as the main uh, idea. If you go to Holland, for example, there is no church to see, except in the Catholic part. Uh, you see the homes of people, beautiful homes. Look at that beautiful home that this rich man built and this one. You go to England, post-Reformation England, well, what there is to see in pre-Reformation England are the magnificent cathedrals that are and the monasteries. breathtaking and the ruined monasteries <laughs> ruined by, by Henry VIII and others. And, uh, and that's the pre-Reformation England. What you see in post-Reformation England? Houses.
the Downton Abbey uh, house or, or the Highclere or whatever, uh, houses that, that were bought and built with, in many cases, the money from the monasteries, the enriched families from the monasteries in England. Uh, and you see how lavishly these people lived. And isn't that amazing? You know, look at how much money they spent on this. And it's all secular. Uh, in, in Catholic Europe, even post-Reformation Catholic Europe, you know, but in Catholic France, you don't see that as much. You don't see, there's still a great Catholic culture continuing in Spain and France and Italy and Austria. And, and you see some fine examples of churches and monasteries. You see still the presence of the supernatural in those countries. But in, in, you know, you go to Denmark and Sweden and, and Norway and, and all of the places that, that went over to Protestantism, including very, very rich England, there's nothing to see. The churches, I mean, perhaps the one exception of St. Paul's in London, is there a single church in England is worth seeing? And even St. Paul's is trading on, mm-hmm. on, on, on Christian yes. notions and ideas. Again, synthesis of all heresies, I would say that the start of so many modern problems um, and we could keep going. The, the last one I want to talk about before we talk about what the church has to do with Luther is your, you say that Luther leads us to secularism. And I think obviously to the halfway house of, of Cuius Regio, Aeus Religio, right? Where, well, it's so contentious. Let's just live and let live. Mm-hmm. Right. And then that gets us to where we are now, which is secularism. Can you, can you talk a bit about that? Well, secularism is the direct outgrowth of the 18th century. Now, the 18th century is going to be uh, the flowering of the deism and unbelief. That's the word that historians use, the unbelief of the 17th century. Uh, And again, this is due to humanism and the general turn toward paganism that we talked about and the disgust with Christianity in Protestant countries. That Christianity becomes absurd, in, and it is absurd as a religion. Uh, Protestantism is totally absurd. Uh, and so anybody that has half a brain cannot reconcile the fact that two people who disagree are both inspired by the Holy Ghost and what they think. I mean, it, it doesn't take much of a brain to figure out that there's something wrong with that system. So they look to philosophy, and, and uh, so philosophy is going to perfect man. They don't believe in original sin. Man can perfect himself by natural means. So you have the rise of naturalism during the uh, 17th century. This is the time when you see the early Freemasonry, which is a type of counter church uh, with the ideas of philosophy and the ideas of perfecting man by means of purely natural means. That we don't need the church. We don't need heaven. We are going to make this earth a civilization of love without the blood of the savior. We don't need these things. We can, we can perfect humanity without a savior, without a church, without religion. That is going to gain- Sounds like a John Lennon song. (laughs) That will gain ground in 17th century England primarily. Uh, And it will be exported to the continent through France primarily, but also to Germany. Uh, and so this thinking becomes popular even in Catholic countries and what is commonly called the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment, a typically Masonic word, means that we're turning on the lights. We've been living in obscurantism, which is their term for Roman Catholicism, 
this medieval world of devils and, and all sorts of superstitions. And now we're turning to philosophy and technology, inventions, to liberate man and perfect him. And if he follows philosophy and follows the, the instincts of the noble savage, the quote Rousseau, uh, he will turn out well. That is the, the direct effect of Protestantism, this disgust with Christianity uh, and the abandonment of Christianity by the intellectual classes, the upper classes, and a great deal of the middle class in, in Catholic Europe. And already in Protestant Europe is gone. It's, Protestant Europe is, is finished practically by this time, uh, in laboring under those things, with perhaps the exception of the lower classes. But the really ruling classes that are determining the culture are very much infected. And culture, as I said, is, is the, the mother of what we hold to be noble and true. It has a tremendous influence upon us. And that's why the Catholic Church, uh, in many cases, sacrificed a lot of things that it considered very dear in order to preserve the Catholic culture in a country and gave kings all sorts of concessions in order to stop them from going into schism uh, so as to retain the Catholic culture. This Protestant culture is going to, to give rise to the, the secularism, the enlightenment, the subjectivism in philosophy, and all of these things are going to come together for the French Revolution. And that is the rejection of the church, rejection of religion in general from the state, the creation of a secularist, laicized state uh, in which religion has no part un unless it is a religion that is in conformity with all of this secularism. And that's a very important point because that's exactly what is going to happen with Vatican II. Which was uh, the 1789 in the church. Yes, as uh, Yves Marsodon said. Yves Marsodon was a Freemason, a very prominent Freemason in France, and he uh, wanted to convert to the Catholic faith. And John XXIII told him, no, don't, don't convert. Uh, things will change. And he wrote a book, and this is when John XXIII was nuncio in France, on uh, Cully. He, this Yves Marsodon wrote a book later calling Vatican II the 1789 in the church, uh, a very famous book. And, uh, and that's precisely what it was. It was the conformity of the church to this idea of perfecting man without supernatural grace, without supernatural dogmas, enlisting the church in this secularistic, humanistic perfection of man. If you read Gaudium and Spes, it's loaded with it. It, it hitches the church to the, uh, like the horses of the church to this carriage of secularistic thinking that man is perfectible without the, the supernatural grace of the Savior and, and the, the, the uh, teaching of the Catholic Church. So the 1789 is, is just the, the watershed. I mean, it's, it's everything. And we're being prepped for it during this time yes, period. Yes, uh, the, the 17th century England infecting 18th century France in particular and Germany, you have to understand that France is the superpower. Even though England is on the rise, France is still the rich nation of the world, the center of all culture. All Europe is looking to France for culture. They're all imitating France. France is the, the country of the world, in, even in the 18th century. So it has a tremendous influence and a tremendous power of influence uh, in Europe. 
And if you can get something going in France, you can get it going any place. This, this is the, the, so the fact that France is turning in its upper classes toward this secularism and this rejection of Catholicism uh, is very, very significant. And it is the direct effect of Protestantism. So as, as Luther attacks the spiritual order, the temporal order erupts and we have revolts breaking out in all of these countries. We obviously don't have time to get into all of that. Mm -hmm. We could probably pick a few notable ones and, and talk about that. Well, there was the Peasants' Revolt right away after the, uh, and he himself complained of it and told the nobles to put them down with violence. Slit their throats or <laughs> yes, stab yes. them under the table. Yes, uh, Luther was always very kind. Of, uh, you know, <laughs> man of the people. Yes, uh, colorful, you might say. But we, we, we lost so many countries during during this time period that uh, so, so much so that as moderns, we, we never actually knew that they were Catholic countries. You, you talked about Norway or Sweden mm. or, or Denmark. Well, at some point, they, they were properly Christian nations, uh, Catholic yes, nations, yes, but, Catholic uh, nations. but their reign as, a Protest, as Protestant power starts from this time. Yes. And if you see the passage from Catholicism to Protestantism in those countries, it's all based on the power and wealth of the king. It's the only interest. I mean, it, it, it is, they don't give a hoot about theology. They just see Protestantism as an opportunity to build up their wealth and their power. And now we have a third player. We would have the start, when Philip the Fair, we started talking uh, today about, about that. And we'd have the church the single church, capital C church, fighting with uh, monarchs who are trying to reduce her power, then you'll have leagues like the Schmalkaldic League and mm -hmm. other leagues of Protestants now allied with Catholics. And then now you involve kings in that game of chess. So it becomes more complicated. Mm -hmm. And now heresy is involved, mm -hmm. not just a power struggle between king, mm -hmm. emperor, pope. Etc. Now, all of that fighting as a result of the Reformation is a sign of how entrenched the Catholic faith was in Europe. The divorce of Catholicism from Europe was a very, very bloody and bitter and cruel thing. And it lasted from 1517 right up to 1648. St. Bishop Williamson once said, if Anne Boleyn's nose had just been a little longer. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we could avoid, but, no, but you, you, make the point, you make the point that Henry VIII would have just found someone else. Oh, the man yes. was the man was corrupted. He was debauchery incorporated. He's just a totally debauched individual. And, and yeah, we see, I mean, he got tired of her and went for somebody else. I mean, amazing that he was with Catherine for almost two decades. It's almost miraculous. And But I mean, her family stock, the character of her family maybe that's what held him together, you know, during that. And he was younger, maybe more idealistic. Yes, uh, uh, but there's still this idea of revolt against the papacy. Uh, the, the defender of the faith. I mean, another king would have said, well, if Clement VII says I can't have an annulment, then I can't have an annulment. Or he would have lived in sin, perhaps, with the woman, but he would not have gone in, he would not have seen it as an opportunity for schism and for confiscation of monasteries uh, there's this spirit of revolt in, in Europe at that time, and it is due to the general decline over the past two centuries that, that you have that spirit of revolt. And you said the watchword of the 800s 
to the 1200s was obedience. Mm -hmm. So now we have a directly contrary watchword, which is... Yes, if New York had been around at that time, you would have seen a statue of obedience in New York Harbor. <laughs> or, 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 or Henry VIII to Pope, obedience dropped dead or something like that. <laughs> Um, you would have seen a statue of Christ the King or our Blessed Lady holding the, the Christ child. That's what you would have seen in the harbor of New York. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what really should be there. The, the Masonic witch that is presently there is, is a product of Freemasonry from beginning to end. Uh, it, is, it just typifies everything of the modern world and the modern spirit. And uh, it is a, a condemnation of what is beyond the statue. You know, that that should be held in such esteem is a very sad thing. We started um, our first interview in this series of looking at Catholic history by talking about the Edict of Milan. Mm -hmm. And perhaps we can end this period of talking about Catholic history, about talking about the Treaty of Westphalia, how different it is from the Edict of Milan and, and what it meant, what it means to us today, but what it meant at the time. Yes, what it did was, in, in, in short, was it gave all of the concessions to the Protestants that they always wanted. It essentially handed over Northern Europe to Protestantism, and particularly Northern Germany to Protestantism, and consented to the de-Catholicization of all of those places. This will have a tremendous effect on history because this will create Prussia, the Protestant militaristic kingdom of Prussia. I don't have to tell you which way that went. They contributed a great deal to uh, the unification of Germany under Prussia, the defeat of the Catholic power, Austria in the 18th The end of the Holy Roman Empire yes, later. later. Yes, later. The Kulturkampf of uh, the, the persecution of the church in those countries. Uh, and then World War I, and uh, most especially World War II. Prussia, Protestant, secularistic Prussia, will gain control of the German spirit and will organize the German peoples in such a way as to make incredible trouble and damage in, in Europe. Uh, not that they were the uh, only guilty party in World War I, especially. The, I, it's a shock, but I think the most guilty party in starting that war was France. Mm. But that's a whole other interview. Yes, it uh, is. But the Germans certainly, uh, and especially Prussia, that spirit of Prussia, uh, anti-Catholic, militaristic, uh, and uh, the super state, the idea of the super state uh, was very prevalent in, in Prussia. Uh, that gained control of the German spirit and, and many, many things occurred as a result of that. The, uh, the Treaty of Westphalia split Europe forever, destroyed Christian Europe. It destroyed it and put Europe on a whole different path. And history has changed. Does that mean very strong words, Your Excellency? I mean, I, you, I mean, some would say, well, it's the best of a bad job. Or you, you might think of uh, His Excellency's words at having to have a Novus Ordo inside uh, St. Nicholas was a disappointment. Uh, this was not the result that we wanted, but you know, there were some concessions for the church. Yes. But you, you are not merely disappointed. No, no, this is a, again one of those pivotal points of history, one of the stops on the train. And 
the the final concession to Protestantism. Uh, up to that time, uh, Protestantism could have been defeated, uh, but this was the establishment of a Protestant state, a major and powerful Protestant state in the long run. And it was what is even more lamentable. It was with the help of the great Catholic power of France. Not only the help, but practically created it. It's on secular interests, that is, for fear of an excessively powerful Habsburg Empire. Uh, so, and, and the church, the interests of the church were just set aside. It was They weren't even interested in what the Pope said. In 1648, Treaty of Westphalia, that uh, also is the accession to the throne, if I'm not mistaken, of Louis XIV as a young child. 1648. So the triumph of politics over popery. Yes, it's the triumph of politics over the interests of religion. Mm. And that, that is very, very significant. It is, it is decline with a capital D. Eventually religion will just disappear. And in order to make an attempt to survive, it will prostitute itself to become secularistic. That's the only word I could put on it. That it will dress itself up to look like a, a, a that it has the same interests <laughs> as the secularization of man, and you know that uh, that all 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 secular man needs is a little religion that it is modified to his interests, and he'll be fine. That is integral humanism of Maritain, and that's that inspired Paul VI down to his fingertips. Mm. I feel like the Dana Carvey church lady figure, and I want to say, oh, did you mean ecumenism, Your Excellency? <laughs> um, because that's that's where that leads us as well. Yes, yeah, Immanuel Kant in the 18th century said that the greatest day for religions will be when they all come together into one great religion. Right? The, the, uh, it is perfect enlightenment, uh, and, and it's also subjectivist. The, you know, your religion is okay, my religion is all right. There is no one true religion. There is no exclusivity. This is perfectly in accordance with all of the enemies of the Catholic Church uh, and with all of the uh, philosophers of the 18th century who destroyed the notion of objective truth. I think, and, the, and any viewers who watch this video right, right after or nearby watching the video in which you talk about the beginnings of, of Christendom and, and the order that Christendom brought, can appreciate as we're looking backwards, having traveled through this time with you and as you're describing it, just how much it took to destroy the Christian order. Because if you live in a universe in which there is a God, there is a religion, there is a church that he's established with a visible head, and there are laws in which all of your neighbors and all of your friends and family, whether they observe them or not, acknowledge as correct, to get to the other side where, well, everyone's fine, and none of that stuff matters, and religion no, no religion you know let's just love each other and then that is the great virtue mm -hmm. the great virtue now is tolerance and that was always something the church had to resort to in for practical necessities okay well we'll tolerate it but it's not the virtue it is the super virtue of the modern world yeah. tolerance mm -hmm. but it was never looked at as a super super virtue in the christian world it's christian not a virtue world. at all it is a, a bearing of an evil. It's a suffering of an evil. Uh, and it's not even a permission of an evil. It's simply to not punish an evil for some good reason, for a greater good or to avoid a greater evil. So it's not a virtue because virtue, any act of a virtue is always good. That would mean that any tolerance at all is always good. 
Tolerance is not always good. Sometimes you can sin very imprudently and by against prudence by tolerating something you should not tolerate. The modern world is very intolerant of anything that is politically incorrect. Right, it's very intolerant of intoleration. Yes, oh yes. No, no toleration for those who deny toleration. <laughs> and it has itself become the highest good. See, man cannot escape the highest good. He cannot escape a supreme principle of morality. No matter how much he denies God, no matter how pagan he becomes or atheistic, he has a supreme principle of morality and everything he decides as good is good for him because it's in conformity with his supreme principle of morality. And everything that is not in conformity with that supreme principle is bad. See, so if you're a, a liberal socialist Democrat, everything is good in as much as it conforms to that, everything is bad in as much as it's Republican or, or in some way conservative, then it's all evil and bad. Because you, man cannot escape that. He, just as he cannot escape the first principles of reason, uh, the, the skeptic says there's no such thing as absolute truth. And there is no such thing as absolute truth. And he says that with such an absolutism that he becomes absurd <laughs> because he cannot escape the absolutism of the intellect. It holds to absolute truths by nature, you see. And, and everything else is judged in conformity with that. And so religion properly is that. And the true religion properly has that supreme place in the mind of man. But if he abandons it, he will substitute something else. And there are many religion substitutes today. Uh, if you go to the Northeast, uh, liberal dem democratism, that's the only word I can put for it, is practically a religion. You can taste it. You can, they, they have established the, the, the blue culture, so to speak, in such a way that if you were to say anything that were even mildly politically conservative, people would look at you as if you were some sort of a monster. And in a milder form, I suppose being a Yankees fan is a religion. As well. <laughs> uh, so uh, you know, it is a religion substitute. To, to hear you describe it, you know, again going back to the, the Middle Ages, if the watchword was obedience, it actually takes more effort. You talked about the the, the fist pounding of the absolutist, but the skeptic uh, of the skeptic really. Catholicism, at the end of the day, is a submission to the obvious. Yes. It is. The, one of the great appeals of Catholicism is that it fits hand in glove with all of the truths of natural religion. Anything that you can deduce about God by reason fits with Catholicism perfectly. And that's one of the big attractions of the Catholic faith. So the indictment against modern man is not that he is uh, fighting with all of his strength against obeying, but that he has forgotten or, or has cleaned his mind of even realizing that there is an order that has to be obeyed by distracting himself with other things. Uh, you know, there's a great deal of pride in modern man that wants to make himself the center of all things, uh, make himself the, the principle of order. And he is true to himself if he if he is operating according to his own categories, as 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 Kant would say. And uh, each person has this right to to. Uh, a type of selfishness and uh, self-interest in, in ordering everything to himself. There is something as good if it pertains to your good. No, there is a, certainly an intellectual part of the modern apostasy, but the decline into materialism very much contributes to that. And the modern man is, is so distracted by materialism 
and by games and distractions that he is practically incapable of, of thinking about what is truth. The, the statement of Pilate rings so true. What is true? I mean, what are, we, what are you talking true. about? <laughs> you know, that meaning of truth itself, for this I came into the world, the witness unto the truth, and those who are of the truth hear my voice. So there, there is truth itself, God himself speaking, and then you have the response of the pagan man. What is truth? Is it money? Is it power? Is it? But that's that blindness. He can't see the truth in front of him. Yes. As you, as you say, because he's made himself the governing principle. Yes. yes. I am pilot, I yes. suppose. It's, uh, it's, it's a sign of the tragedy of man in original sin that, that he, he is even blind. Here he has God himself in front of him. Imagine having this personal meeting with our Lord Jesus Christ and being able to ask him whatever you wanted. And seeing that that from even from his wife's dream, his wife that there's something supernatural and fearing. So the Lord said, "You would have no power over me unless my Father gave it to you from above." And this made Pilate, the, because Rome's being superstitious, like, "What do I have here?" <laughs> but he is incapable, even with those those uh, alerts, if you want, to the fact that this was somebody very special. He, he said, what is truth? He was incapable of, of hooking up with, with truth itself, even though truth was standing in front of him. It's, it's a, a lesson in modern man. And you know, Gary Gou Lagrange was one of the great Thomists of the Catholic Church, and a magnificent mind, and hopefully one day will be a doctor of the church. Uh, he put that very statement, what is truth, as the, on the title page of his great work, God is Existence and His Nature which was the refutation of Immanuel Kant and all of the subjectivist philosophy. And he put that on the title page as the, essentially representing the whole position of subjectivist modern philosophy. What is truth? Uh, and, and modern man is very much distracted from even the notion of truth. Well, it's not a very joyful place to end, Your Excellency, but we are, we are at the end of that period. Um, thank you again for walking us through period leading from Philip the Fair to the Treaty of Westphalia, and we'll continue these discussions as we examine, we just finished, the, let's say, the, the birth of the modern world and, and to where we are today and uh, how these problems further afflict us. Thank you for your time. Thank you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.